Hello and welcome to The Naked Scarf. I'm Adam. And I'm Andy. And in this episode we're going to be looking at the horror of Fang Rock. And without further ado, Andy, give us a plot synopsis. Well, fortunately, uh, this week's uh, podcast, the plot synopsis is rather more simple than the last one. Basically, the um, Wolf Doctor and Leela land uh, supposedly on Brighton, uh, but unfortunately they don't actually. They land somewhere called Fang Rock, and there is a large lighthouse there. They take refuge in the lighthouse because they've landed in the midst of a large fog, and uh, the sea's very choppy. Um, early on in the story, one of the people looking after the lighthouse is discovered dead, and then it turns into a quite psychological episode whereby somebody is picking off uh, various people who are either already in the lighthouse or who turn up at the lighthouse and they are trying to determine uh, who or what it might be. Um, it's worth pointing out maybe that the other people turn up because a ship crashes in the fog. Oh yes, because a ship crashes in the fog. Um, after last week's uh, plot synopsis extravaganza I refused to write this one down because it's very very simple. It's just very good psychological thriller and um, at the end, everybody's dead. Yes, um, it might be worth pointing out what the alien is. Oh yes, and there's an alien. <laughs> they be killed by an alien. We, sh we should really point this out, I think, at some I point. I am very tired, very tired. Uh, I'm, I'm giving this plot synopsis a C. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, the alien in question is a Ruton, which is the first and only... No, not technically the only time, but I'll get back to that. But this is the first time we've seen the Suntaran, the famed Suntaran enemy on screen. They've often been re referenced in Suntaran stories as their great war against Aruton, but this was the first time we see one. Yep, and I have to say I'd rather sleep with a Suntaran than a Aruton. Yeah, do you always have to bring it down to this level? <laughs> um, yeah, it's not really a great choice, is it, between, between the two? It's not like, <laughs> No, ooh, the Aruton is basically a massive glob of faintly ball-shaped green slime with some tentacles that doesn't actually move upstairs that well. Interesting, you called it a psychological thriller. Would you? I've, I didn't think of it like that. I, I'll, I'll say in a second how I class it, but I'm kind of curious to know what made you call it that. Well, basically, I think that it's, it's a classic take on a very effective storytelling device, which is where the audience are aware that uh, they've unintentionally shut themselves in a lighthouse with the enemy, with the thing that's picking them off. But the characters aren't aware until near the end that they're actually inside with the enemy, um, as opposed to outside. It's it's funny, actually. If, if I were to compare it to a later episode, it's it's a tiny bit, not not very much, but a little bit um, similar to Midnight, oh, the Russell T. Davis episode. Yeah, yeah. Um and yes, I, I can see because it, it wasn't a complicated plot. It was very straightforward. There was no jumping back and forwards in time. There were literally a couple of set pieces, most of which were inside the lighthouse, a very few scenes on the rocks outside the lighthouse. And basically it was an episode that was designed to be frightening to a younger audience um, and it does have that psychological element where they're trying to work out what's going on uh, at certain points in the story lots of different people are accused of perhaps being the one who's killing people off there's suspicion going on there's uh, a, a lot of different elements and I would definitely call it a quite a psychological story okay now that's that's an interesting take on it 
I, I don't disagree as such, but I, I would never have thought of calling it a psychological thriller. Because to me, uh, the horror of Fang Rock is very much a classic example of the what I think you can loosely term the base under siege story. Right. The idea basically being the characters are trapped in some uh, trapped with either an alien or aliens or or a murderer, and that they're in an, in some kind of enclosed trap space. Uh, in this case, a lighthouse, but you also see it in, say, Tomb of the Cybermen. Yes. Uh, I wrote, wrote a few down. Uh, Robots of Death, actually, yep. from, the, from the series 14. God, I love uh, Tomb of the Cybermen. Yes, also, we'll get to that eventually. Yes. And uh, Warriors of the Deep, which isn't a great one, but again, no. trapped on the base, aliens attacking. And it's. I mean, Horror Fang Rock works so well because it is a simple take, and that's not to, that's not to dismiss it. Because the characters are very well acted, they're very well written, they work well. And actually, because the lighthouse is a very claustrophobic environment. It is, yes. Because you've got only one staircase. Well, that's it. It's the one staircase. It's the fact that um, each level only obviously has one room. Um, And also the fact that even on the outside, they're still trapped on a very tiny island um, just off the coast. And there is a point where um, their transmitter, their Morse code... Um, machine is damaged, it's sabotaged by one of the characters and effectively they've cut off all contact with the mainland Um, so yes, they're they're essentially trapped and and by themselves, you're right, it is incredibly claustrophobic and it's a kind of story that Doctor Who has often returned to and has done very well because it's it's such a, it's a great format it is, and the thing about it is that um, even though the audience knows more than the characters do in the sense that the audience know and understand that uh, it, it's the enemy is inside the lighthouse with the characters when they think that actually it's outside the lighthouse and they've barricaded themselves in. It isn't until the end that we actually fully understand what that enemy is. It's actually one of the few cases I would say where, thinking about it, the audience knows more than the Doctor. Yes, actually, that, that's, a, that's a nice way of putting it, um, because it, it's, it's uh, notable in the end, that the Doctor does in fact say, oh, I've made a mistake. and that, Whoops, half yeah. of you are dead, because <laughs> I wasn't paying attention. By the end, all of you are going to be dead because I wasn't paying attention. Well, yeah. that's a little harsh, perhaps, but it, <laughs> it's still, yeah, one of those cases where we, we do, as a viewer, know more than the Doctor. Very good Leela story. Yes. A uh, classic Leela story God, in some I love ways. It, it really illustrates her direct approach. There's a great moment where, where the Doctor goes, stay here and operate the lighthouse horn, and she looks bored as hell or doing it, and shows he wants to be out there in the action. And yeah. you know, she's never scared. She's she's right out there, and you have a nice contrast with the character of Adelaide, who's very much a Edwardian heroine. Uh, she's very much screams and faints, and it's it's a bit useless. She and got right on my tits. Yes. She got right on Leela's tits too. But th- there's a couple. It's, it's interesting because there's one moment very early on where Leela's put on some warm uh, men's clothing, lighthouse clothing. And she she walks into the room the first time Adelaide sees her, and there's a wonderful little reaction shot of, of Adelaide, and the look of disgust on her face at looking at Leela is, is yeah. just a ni- nice contrast. Um, well, maybe contrast isn't the right word, but a nice way of underlying the time, the, the the time period, and the attitudes. Because we're never given an exact time for this, but it's presumed. It's the very early 1900s, possibly Actually, we are given a time for it, sort of, because uh, at some point they said that it happened... Um, they, they think that it's a monster, initially. There's a there's a legend of the monster of Fang Rock. And they said that... Uh, oh, the 
sort of um, old guy in the lighthouse, Ruben, Ruben um, said that it happened 80 years ago. And then at some point, somebody refers mm. to it happening in the 20s. So I assume they mean the 1820s, which would make it 1900. What's interesting is that when the uh, shipwreck happens, all the main characters, apart from the sailor Harker, they're very upper class. That you know, they're all lords and secretary, and you get this. It's an interesting look at brief look at the kind of class, the difference from that time of people with class, because obviously all the people operating lighthouse are very kind of working class, and it, it just it's never really gone into a, in overly detail. But it's a nice little almost period touch. It reminds you of it's almost an alien time to us as it is to yes, Luna. Yes, I, I did notice actually the script isn't very kind to the gentrified in that particular episode. They, they don't come across very, very well. <laughs> I was going to sorry, sorry. sorry they they occasionally came across, uh, come across uh, uh, um, like a, another more modern reference, but uh, uh, Lady Krista D'Souza in uh, the, the Planet Easter of the special Dead. Planet of the Dead. No, no, sorry, I completely interrupted you while you were talking there. Uh, I can't edit that out. I would say generally Doctor Who's never been that fussed on authority figures. No. Pertwee, as was once described as being something of like an aristocratic lord who let hippies camp on his estate, which is quite nice. But apart from that, generally speaking, it's never been very fond of those kind of characters. And like Palmerdale is very, is very two-dimensional in, say, the way that perhaps Skinsale, Colonel Skinsale, isn't in that... You say that, although there have been many uh, examples in the past of episodes where they've gone back and visited uh, various historical figures who usually are of a higher class, and, and the Doctors have really had massive problems with them. Really? Usually every authority figure that the Doctor meets, he has some kind of problem. Well, maybe not every, but I'm just I'm, saying generally a certain type of authority figure, a, maybe. A certain type. No, I'm, I, I have to admit, I am thinking about this more in the context of actual um, historical figures as opposed to uh, a sort of more uh, yeah, invented I, yeah, character. Yeah, I, mean, I was thinking more in the case of invented authority yes. figures come along and, and the Doctor... I, I'm just saying this. It's not entirely... It, it doesn't always uh, treat uh, the upper echelons as uh, some sort of uh, disgusting virus or something. On society. Yeah. God damn. I was, because we were, we were uh, with our normal uh, poise and uh, control, talking about how good Leela story it is. Yes. And, you know, she's very proactive. She does does a lot. Uh, there, there's that scene of her gloating over the, over over the, the, death. Of the death of Ruton, really. And it's interesting because the Dr. Leela relationship is unique in that sense, that no other character took quite so much pleasure in violence. I mean, you had a character like Jamie, who was, again, a Highland yes. warrior, but he was never as enthusiastic about it as perhaps Leela was. And in some ways, her and it's interesting with, with Tom Baker as a doctor because he could be very alien and detached, and there's a couple of moments where he's, both of them, must seem almost terrifying to the other characters because they're not laughing, but they're, they're almost, they're concerned, but they're not that worried about, they're not upset by the death. Yes. No, that's an interesting point, actually. I mean, if, if you were in a situation where you needed to be saved, I think one of the companion teams you'd least like to turn up would be the Dots and Leela, because they'd probably <laughs> be the least sympathetic. Yeah, they're not going to offer you a cup of tea. 
Um, no, Leela was very much like that throughout. In fact, there was uh, one excellent scene where she told the doctor that he had to, you know, he had to be brave or show courage or something along those lines. And, you know, he had to confront the enemy. And, and the doctor almost sort of uh, didn't really take it on board. And then a moment later, he was like, hang on, why are you telling me this? You know, which but I thought was quite good. It's interesting because, again, uh, Leela, gro uh, Leela gloats over the dead Ruton and she goes back up and other doctors would have been a big speech about how you shouldn't gloat over the enemy or these pointless deaths and he does say he doesn't think it's necessary but he never goes into a big yeah. moralistic he just rant. said oh i don't have time for morals or uh, something no 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 or, to be fair he said i don't have time to discuss, to morals, discuss morals which is a very different thing yes no, and sorry. he did say is it necessary to gloat over your enemy but still it's it's just they have the, there's one we'll probably talk about more when we see Watch other the thing is, is episodes, but it is an interesting Alila's character is is much more interesting in some ways than a lot of the other companions because of her background. You know, um, Tom Baker refers to her as a, a savage, and she is pretty savage. I think that he accepts that as part of her nature, but I think that he's also slowly introducing his own ideas to her. Um, yeah, but she never really stops killing. No, um, she I doesn't. think even in Invasion of Time, her last story, I think I'm. It's very certain she kills, and it's, it's an odd example of maybe because there's this well, it's an idea that's come up a lot in the new series, and it's one that I, that I occasionally don't disagree with because it's about the idea of the doctor making people better. And yes. like, there's that famous line I think I'm putting mocked it with you in uh, Amy's Choice where the doctor goes, I choose my friends carefully. And I'm like, No, you don't. Half <laughs> of them just wandered into the TARDIS accidentally. What two of them you kidnapped, you know, you, you've never really. In fact, actually, in Legopolis, there's a nice line where the Doctor goes, I've never chosen my travelling companions, or something along those lines. And that's far more accurate. I have to say, I always thought but, of Leela's character and her relationship with the Doctor as kind of like, she's a bit like the Doctor's cat in a weird kind of way. You can teach a cat to be domestic, but it'll never stop bringing in small furry creatures and enjoy the look of horror on your face as they rip it up in front of you. Plus, um, there's always that sense that you get with cats that they're kind of letting you cohabit their space just as much as you're getting them to come live with you. It's, it's uh, yeah, she's still very much her own thing, but I, I, I love Leela's relationship with the Doctor. Yeah, I mean, it's never quite the same chemistry it is between, say, him and Sarah Jane. But it, no, it is a it is an interesting uh, relationship. Well, I am very fond of her, not just because of the leather dresses uh -huh. uh, or bikinis, to be more yeah, exact. But we they they don't hurt. They don't hurt. <laughs> because what uh, what's also interesting about this story, apart from the fact that it was pretty much a last minute replacement for the Witch Lords, which became State of Decay, and it hangs together so well. Yeah. And Terence Dix is knowing what what he's doing, knowing the character, just yep. putting it out there. But what's interesting is that the place it occurs in the history of uh, Doctor Who, because it's the first t uh, story Graham Williams produces after the uh, Philip Hincliffe era. And it's interesting because obviously Graham Williams' brief was to make the show less dark and less violent because the BBC had got their knickers in a twist about, well, about Mary Whitehouse. Then again, it opens with this story, which it could is... completely come from the previous it season. Could. There's it no really indication. But then again... I think if I got this right in my head, the next story introduces canine. But then, story after that, Image of Fendel, which I don't know if you've seen. No, I've not. It's very good. But again, it could come from uh, from uh, series 12 to 14. Series uh, 15 is this odd transitional phase where you've still got Robert Holmes' uh, story editing, which you can very much see as influence on something like Image of the Fendel or uh, Horror Fang Rock. And then, but you start with Horror Fang Rock. And then you eventually end up with Invasion of Time, and where uh, Anthony Reed is um, 
has taken over as script editor and it's particularly as that's Invasion of Time, not to get too much into it now, is a kind of a sequel to The Deadly Assassin. But it's a very slightly more light hearted. Right. But and it's very different in its own way. The tone has noticeably shifted in in that one year, which I, I always find interesting. But actually what's also interesting is obviously the series starts with the uh with Horrifying Rock and with the Rutans and uh Final Story has the Centaurans. <laughs> nice touch. Probably not deliberate at all, but it no. is it's quite a nice little thing. I mean, it is interesting because, as I've written down here and mentioned earlier, the Centaurans and the Rutons have never been seen on screen together, despite the fact they get mentioned in each other's stories and they're having this great big war. Except in the mid-90s, have you ever heard of Shakedown? I have not heard of Shakedown, Well, no. you, during the 90s, there were various uh, fan-produced films, uh, released right. uh, professionally, uh, because of the way the rights work. There was a lot of ca- uh, creatures and characters who... The, the authors had the right to, so you could get the rights, you could right. produce your own films with them in. I have to admit, during the 90s, I did tend to avoid anything which made it a combination of the words Doctor Who film. Yes, when, did, when what year did you get into the series? Um, Would it, you're going to make me feel old. Oh, no, it's okay, I, I can't do this to you. Okay. you. You go on, you go on. I'm only, what, seven, eight years older than you? But anyway, one of them was Shakedown. Um, and it had the Centaurans in, and the and it had a Rutan. I've actually never seen it, but I have bizarrely enough read the because uh, they adapted it for the New Adventures range as well oh, right. by Terence Dix. Cool. And they kind of novelise the middle part is the novelisation. The uh, the middle part of that book is the novelisation of the film. So you do have the two of them together, but never on screen. I mean, they have obviously they haven't brought the Centaurans back in the new series and mentioned the Rutans. You do wonder if now it might happen at some point. And it would be interesting to to see, I think, because because like people say, it, it, they're a good contrast because the Centaurans are so rigid, and yes. yet the Rutons are shape changers and blobby, and it, it's a nice little contrast. You know, you couldn't mistake one for the other. Yeah, I, I, I do actually want to track down some of these uh, '90s films. There was a series of them. Uh, There's like Auton with the Autons, and Unit was in it, and you got like Nicholas Courtney. And, we should and, do it. We and, should track them down, and we should get really drunk one night and watch them all. I think some of them are quite good. I mean, but it's all because you've got in Shakedown, you've got people like Sophie Aldred and oh, really? Caroline Ford, not playing Susan or Ace, playing uh, different characters. But you, then you've got people like in uh, Downtime, which had the Yeti in it. And Victoria and the Brigadier, I think Sarah Jane Smith. And there, there's this interesting thing that the BBC wasn't producing Doctor Who, so eventually the fans produced it. And there were a few companies like BBV who specialised, and I think they're still going. And they also did like audio adventures and stuff. And it's, it's just this fascinating, I find it really, I think it speaks volumes for Doctor Who fans that yeah. BBC basically went, okay, it's almost a very British thing, that kind of amateur approach of, no, no, we'll do it ourselves, that's fine. Brilliant bunch of nutters. Absolutely. You've got to love your but nutters. I would like to track some of them down, because I didn't see many of them when they were out, because at the time, particularly in the 90s, my main priority was getting the Doctor Who videos. Yes. As much as I might be interested in the, uh, the spin-offs, I didn't have them also. And, I, and also, I, I was a teenager, and I only had so much income to spend, so if it was a choice between a spin-off and an actual Doctor Who series, a Doctor Who story I hadn't seen yet... That was always going to be the one I went for. I think some of them might be available on DVD now. But perhaps, yeah, perhaps we should try to track one down and just have a look. I would be curious. Yes, OK, we'll do that. We'll have a very drunk night and 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 we'll dress up as various Doctor Who costumes and pretend whoa, like we're going whoa, to whoa, the OK, we, we, can, <laughs> we can do that. Actually, can I just say one of the things I loved about this is it's got, it's got a classic uh, Doctor Who alien 
point of view shot because this is something that the, you know the series did a lot was was showing slightly distorted imagery and yes. as the alien <laughs> point of view and in, in this case it's 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 amazing uh the number of aliens who if you follow logic have terrible peripheral vision because they only seem to see yeah, down they a only tiny seem to see round tunnel vision tunnel like, vision like there's a there's there's a, like when you're looking down the gun at the beginning of the James Bond film credits it's and, very much like that yeah. i mean it's like in uh, the poet we saw death of the daleks you get a dalek yeah. point uh, point of view and you just think how can these people conquer the universe when they can't they can only see that amount ahead of them but it's interesting because you like the rotonity is in black and white which is like a cat and that would be andy's phone <laughs> something actually i just noticed uh one of the sailors is called harker and this was replaced uh a vampire story so i'm fairly certain that's a little oh, yeah nice. terence's uh part the other thing that I really liked about this episode actually is that the doctor and Leela accidentally get blown off course land on a lighthouse, go in the lighthouse, four episodes later, a bunch of people turn up, everyone dies, and the Doctor and Leela bugger off again. <laughs> How neat is that? That You have a disturbing definition of neat. <laughs> um, but no, it is famous, I think it's one of, these, one, one of the Doctor Who stories where only the Doctor and his companion survive. I'm not too sure which of the other ones are. I think Resurrection of the Daleks... But I have in my head Resurrection Daleks is one of those ones where only the Doctor and the Companions really survive. Everyone else is just massacred. Yeah. Uh, Case of Androzani, to a point, though technically uh, the female, the two female characters survive, even if even the Doctor doesn't. I have Spoilers. to admit, I did have a little cheer when Adelaide snuffed it. She was just so annoying. And, and there was a, a really um, irritating Henry. Is it Henry? Yeah. Um, Lord Palmerdale. Yes, or, yes. Henry. Um, um, I don't know if he was Henry, but I've just written down Henry. Lord Palmerdale. Even if he wasn't Henry, he's Henry now, now. But I'm fairly sure he's Henry. Anyway, yeah, he was a twat. But he's supposed to be. But some fine facial hair for everyone on this. I was very impressed hair. with some of the moustaches, particularly on like Ben, who unfortunately died very early in the episode one, so he couldn't woo us with his wonderful moustache and flowing locks. Yeah, no, I, I have to admit, though, the only thing was I thought it was a bit of a shame about Adelaide because that was a fantastic dress. I wanted to take it and cut the bottom off and wear it down the high street. I would. Well, not like all the bottom off, but, you know, just so it's a bit shorter and then it would be bang up to date. While the BBC uh, visual effects department and designers weren't always that great at the alien world, they were damn good at doing historical stuff because mm. that was their bread and butter. So it, yeah. it looks good. It, it does, and also it would have been a very simple set to do. Although saying that, um, the very last shot, the last episode, the TARDIS um, uh, leaving the rock, I thought was not the greatest model shot I've seen. I was looking at it thinking, yeah, for the time, I was kind of like a bit like, well, it, it does actually look like a little model of a TARDIS. Just... Bizarrely enough, I can't necessarily swear to this. I'm going to try and check very quickly online now as we talk that this actually took place... In different studios than normal, uh, I think there was something. That might. I, I don't. It. I, I don't know. If it, I don't think it would necessarily explain that the, the uh, model shot. Oh yeah, uh, it's 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 principal studio location was Pebble Mill Studios in Birmingham. Uh, the oh, apparently it was the only classic uh, story of the classic series to be made entirely outside of London due to engineering pro problems at the BBC Television Centre. What they mean that everyone was on strike. Seventy. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they were strike. Maybe it was engineering problems. I don't know. Um, I, I would call a massive strike an engineering problem. 
if I were, if I were trying to you know make it sound better. But yes, anyway, um, no, I, I I didn't think the model shot in that particular instance was uh, particularly it's not great, great. But I think we're kind of picking holes if we start now. Yes, but the problem is, is that it's such a. St- I think it's a very effective story. I think it's very straightforward. It's very simple to follow. It's good. You know, it's 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 very watchable. Um, I, I think that you know it's, it's very very good you know for a filler story, and there's not a massive amount that I could start. Did you just, sorry, did you just say filler story or? Yeah, it was. Uh, done I suppose as a that was replacement. the last minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah fair point. Um, and and yeah, I think for that it's it's a tremendous quality. This is a good example of not the most fantastic story ever certainly not but it's a good example of a piece of very watchable and enjoyable uh television you no know, a good example of a uh, doctor who it's one you might say if you wanted to get someone into the uh the original series yeah it's it's probably quite a good one to choose because it doesn't look for lack of a better word it doesn't look too silly or yes. what people would perceive as being silly like for example last night i was watching snake dance and that's a brilliant brilliant story and I, i'm looking forward to when, when we cover that one yeah but you know, it's one of these ones that get used all the time for the clips of Martin Clunes looking a bit neuromantic, <laughs> which is a great shame because he actually does a great performance. But you know, you wouldn't necessarily show that to someone as trying to get them into, into the original series. But Horror Fan Rock is, is a good one. Well, to so show you're them. saying that you know, if we ever did a promo picture to promote this blog, you won't be dressing up as a new romantic. Um, That's a shame. I think it'd make uh, a fantastic uh, new romantic. Only if my public demand it. You heard that, people. <laughs> Can you please email in and say we want Adam to dress up as a new romantic? I'll do his makeup and everything. Like, we'll have a big powdered wig and adamant stripe on the face. And... I think we're going horribly off topic and getting terribly self-indulgent now. So is is there anything else you want to add? Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm completely distracted now by the um, idea of, of you dressed as a new romantic. That's lovely. So... <laughs> Anyway, uh, I think that's pretty much it. I think next story we're going to do is School Reunion. Yeah. We'll do, we'll do our first uh, new, new series. Yeah, and look. I can stop referencing that, like, you know, I just pop back to the new series and I can say, oh, I just pop back to the old series instead. That would be very exciting. I think actually next week, uh, not necessarily next week, but the next episode, we're, we're probably going to have to talk about how I don't necessarily agree recording the original series, the classic series. Oh, it's no. Good. Even though I do for shorthand and convenience sake. Um... But yeah, so we'll do uh, join. It might be a couple of weeks because I've got a hellish time coming up at work, including one seventy-hour week. So obviously, podcasting would be a little bit difficult, unless you just want to hear me crying and moaning about how tired I am. But in the well, meantime, how would that be different from usual? Uh, it would be on the internet. Good point. But in the meantime, if you'd like to contact us, you can email us. Email us at the. What's your email address? Oh yes, no, I remember. Nakedscarf at gmail.com. Thank you. And please follow our Tumblr at nakedscarf.tumblr.com. That's the one. Is it good? It is. Obviously, I'm paying great attention. I'm paying great attention. Allow me to clap like a seal. Hey, hey, I'm the only one who actually updates that Tumblr, so don't get to... <laughs> I don't know the password. I told you, I sent you the password. Did you? Yes, I'll send it to you again if it's a major problem. <laughs> it wasn't uh... about clothes. Do you, do you have any idea how much you're reinforcing the female stereotype right now? I don't what, know by doing about... a Doctor Who podcast? And referencing clothes. Oh, I only know about clothes because I'm a woman. <laughs> a blah, Doctor blah, Who? Blah. You're... 
Uh, but if you want to have a conversation about philosophy or, or politics or political philosophy, that's actually my favourite. I'm a massive, massive fan of but the work. But we'd of... rather you just talk to us about Doctor Who for right, the okay. moment. But to be honest, we'd be quite happy to receive any emails or get any attention for this whatsoever, so screw it. <laughs> anyway, folks, that's all. Take care. Thank you.